If they tell you Nyssa is a hoax and Virgil made all the music, believe it. If they tell you the opposite, believe it. If they tell you this album is the gift of an alien civilization sent to Earth in a meteorite shower, believe it. Annabelle Fairfield, Musicopolis, December 1973. Nissa Adcock is a cipher. Her gaze tells no tales. Phil Galperin, The Times. I love the song madly. But whatever or wherever Devil's Elbow is, this is the closest I care to come. Sylvester Wiggins from a documentary on the 1970s underground rock scene. White magic. Black magic. Nyssa is all that. Born of the mountain and sprung from her own head. No Zeus necessary. I was a strange kid. I have an early memory of looking in the old tin mirror on the back of my door when I was maybe four. Hand-painted scrolling strawberry vines. I loved that mirror more than life itself. I understood that my eyes were just gigantic in my skinny face. Crater lakes. Watchful. People felt me charmed somewhat. Otherworldly is what I mean. Out here there are stories of little moon-eyed people who lived in the mountain caves way before the Indians even. They told those stories yet when I was coming up. No chance I was a changeling, though I sometimes wished it, dreaming I'd been switched at birth with a mythic creature. Nissa Adcock. This is Janet Fitch. This is Jeff Jackson. This is Dana Spiota. This is Chris L. Terry. This is Michael Amos Cody. This is Lance Olson. This is Jessamine Violet. This is Zachary Lazar, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. is lit season three hey there lit listeners welcome to season three of rock is lit the first and still only podcast devoted to rock novels and also a recent finalist in the popcon indie podcast contest in the category of art and culture podcast Rock is Lit is written, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Christy Alexander-Hallberg, author of my own rock novel, Searching for Jimmy Page. Special shout-out to this season's intern, Hannah Stewart. Rock is Lit is a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Hey, I'm John Stewart, and you're listening to the Pantheon Network. Find me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Christy Hallberg. Visit my website at ChristyAlexanderHallberg.com. Drop me a line at christyalexanderhallberg at gmail.com to let me know what rock novels you'd like to hear featured on the show. And for goodness sakes, subscribe, comment, leave a five-star rating and all that good stuff on your podcast platform of choice. Wyatt, the Rock is Lit mascot, and I thank you for your support.
In this episode, we're straying from the rock novels camp to talk about a single short story entitled A Wayfarer at Devil's Elbow, written by North Carolina author, Pushcart Prize nominee, and musician Emily Alice Katz. The story, which appears in the new online issue of North Carolina Literary Review, was a finalist in the 2022 Doris Betts Fiction Prize, an annual competition sponsored by the North Carolina Writers Network, with winning entries and some finalists published in NCLR. Full disclosure, I serve as senior associate editor of the journal. I'll put a link in the show notes to the new issue of NCLR, where you can find Emily's story and read all the other amazing stories, essays, and poetry in the issue. Emily Alice Katz's short fiction has appeared in such literary journals as North Carolina Literary Review, Salamander, Jelly Bucket, Meridian, South Carolina Review, and Story South. Her short story collection, The Book of Nut and Other Stories, was designated a finalist for the 2019 Eludia Award. And her short story, Little Hen, is included in the 2022 anthology, Frankly Feminist, short stories by Jewish women from Lilith Magazine. Emily has a PhD in Modern Jewish Studies from the Jewish Theological Seminary. Her book, Bringing Zion Home, Israel in American Jewish Culture, 1948 to 1967, was published in 2015. I'm really excited to feature Emily's story, A Wayfarer at Devil's Elbow, in this episode. The story follows a young music journalist in her quest to locate and interview an obscure 1970s experimental rock musician from the mountains of North Carolina, Nissa Adcock, who has fallen off the musical map and become a recluse and a bit of a rock and roll mystery. To kick off the episode, I've asked Emily to read an excerpt from the story, which we'll discuss afterward. Special thanks to Tim Randall and Hub Respis, respectively, for providing the voices of music critics in the opening. And now, here's Emily Alice Katz reading A Wayfarer at Devil's Elbow. wayfarer at devil's elbow. Rumor has it that human ingenuity built the synthesizer, the bass, the guitar, the drum. Yet there's nothing recognizably human about Nyssa in Virgil's music, aside from its pumping, bloody heart. John Paul Durang, Next Beat Monthly, January 1974. I knew just the basic facts when I first started digging. In the wake of their studio debut in late 1973, the duo was hailed by critics as breakthrough artists, their album, the only one they were ever to make together, an instant icon of experimental rock. I read every article on Nyssa and Virgil in existence when I was given the go-ahead from the editors of Works on Paper to write my own story. I thought this was my shot at the music critic firmament. Me at the time, three years ago, a 24-year-old with a take-notice blog and a handful of ferocious album reviews in the local Free Weekly. Ms. Badass Music Critic Nobody. I've learned a thing or two since then. Virgil Ridenauer, a session drummer among the Woodstock crowd in the late 60s, 
Then, briefly, in the early 70s, bandmate of out-of-nowhere Nissa Adcock. In his apparent prime in the 1980s, he morphed into a producer of Electronica, at first abstruse and then arena-ready. Prostate cancer in the late 90s, his wretched end. Nissa, in contrast, burned brightly and then disappeared occluded herself from the music scene to amble down other roads unseen, as far as I could tell. The magazine articles on Virgil were many and fawning, though a couple of detractors surfaced after his ugly public breakup with his wife during his superstar producer days. The writing on Nyssa specifically, though, was slim. A short, cryptic interview in a weekly that folded two months after it launched in 1975. A throwback blurb in a British style magazine in 1991. I tunneled and excavated, sneezing dust and breaking microfilm rolls in university library basements. Did he discover her or did she discover him? Were they true partners? Or was she his unwitting tool? overpowered and manipulated, as so often happened to women in the industry back then and still today. I couldn't pin down the nature of their collaboration. I had to talk to her. She was impossible to find, until she wasn't. I unearthed her in the mountains of western North Carolina, or I should say she let herself be unearthed by me. When she agreed to the interview through the organic farmer nephew of the spouse of an old college friend of mine, I was amped, the dial to 11, and intimidated, and most of all, mystified. I twisted myself through the spiraling wisps of quotes and hearsay and documentary film musings, traces of her life, a thousand times, it seemed, in the months before we met. It could be some kind of truth, what I had ferreted out and pieced together, or no kind of truth. I wouldn't know till I sat down with her, or wouldn't know, ever. But I was sure it was worth the gamble. The famous and then forgotten album is eponymous. The cover art, a frontal shot of a couple staring into the camera, a riff on a family daguerreotype you might find in a rusty locket in your great-grandmother's attic. A pen and ink, briar and rose wreath twists along the oval border of the portrait. In the photograph, Virgil wears his trademark railroad cap. He gazes at the photographer with a lazy, just waking up hunger, a courtier catching a first glimpse of his faded damsel. When I first saw the album on my uncle's shelf at 13, it was Virgil I ached for. As for the other half, In the Times, Phil Galprin wrote, Nissa Adcock is a cipher. Her gaze tells no tales. La belle dame sans merci through the masking planar brushstrokes of a Modigliani. Randall Quint in Riot Express. We hear in the music she supposedly makes that the lady is not lobotomized, but you wouldn't know it from the looks of her. Anybody home? Other critics, too, scoured that photograph for clues. But the woman on the album cover? She wasn't Nyssa. I was just beginning research, bookmarking websites in my mildewy studio apartment in an underserviced edge of the city when Eureka struck. 
down an internet rabbit hole, I stumbled upon a public television documentary from years before. One of the interviewees, aging rocker Jeannie Skull, spoke of the hippie commune outside Oakland to which she was born, how its freewheeling, icon-smashing artistic ethos shaped her sensibilities. Cut to a photograph of Jeannie, the post-punk queen as pigtailed toddler. She sits in the lap of a woman on a DIY driftwood throne on a forlorn beach. Her hands wound through the woman's long hair. A caption fades in on the bottom left with musician Nissa Adcock, 1972, and fades out again. No explanation. The photograph is window dressing. When the camera cuts back, Jeannie is glaring at her interviewer, waxing furious about the implosion of the commune when she was eight, thanks to the preening ambition of its abusive sellout founder. Jeannie's father, Natch. I pulled the image backward, hit pause, plucked my copy of the album from its hallowed shelf above my bed. I held the album up to the computer screen, clutching it with both hands. The woman next to Virgil in that sepia album cover photograph, wild curls cascading, dead eyes and a broad, heart-shaped face, slack, rosebud mouth, the barest hint of freckles spackling her nose and cheekbones. The woman in the photograph in the Genie Skull documentary? Angular, dark, a curtain of straight black hair framing her face, a forehead like a sweep of naked cliff, a long straight nose, her mouth a slash of imperious amusement. It wasn't the same person depicted in the dual portrait album cover two years later. No way. Blowing past cheap psychedelic tricks to land at the sonic godhead, Nissa and Virgil are no art school tinkerers. The duo has built a contemplative architecture for the ages, and they ask us to swing from rafter to rafter, naked. Warren Granger, Rocks Off Magazine, December 1973. There are only 10 songs on the album. Make Me Mayhap is folk music rung through a 1920s Dada ready-made apparatus. What sounds at first like a mechanized bird call is, according to one critic, a tinny off-key player piano. Our Euroborus burrows is little more than whispers until the marching band drumline and fuzzed-out upright bass drop in. In Idle Wild, two children sing a cappella in Inuit. The final track, The Effing Barouche, is like a lullaby broadcast by a deranged cephalopod, a muffled, twisted call from the abyss. At the center of the album, the final piece on side A on the LP, is the duo's 12-minute opus, Devil's Elbow. The song and arrangement credited to Nissa alone, though Virgil lent his hand to several instruments, according to the sparse liner notes. You have to listen to it to believe it. Every time I slip my headphones on, I'm sent somewhere I've never been. There's some sound or space between sounds that's always new. It's uncanny and raw and melancholy and fierce and seismic. It is life flashing before your eyes the moment you take your last rattling breath. I love the song Madly. But whatever or wherever Devil's Elbow is, 
quips the critic Sylvester Wiggins in a contemporaneous documentary on the 1970s underground rock scene, this is the closest I care to come. I pined to meet the woman who made the song. It itched red hot under my skin, this desire to see her, to speak to her, to inhabit the same space, if only for an afternoon. And an afternoon was all we did have in the end. If they tell you Nissa is a hoax and Virgil made all the music, believe it. If they tell you the opposite, believe it. If they tell you this album is the gift of an alien civilization sent to Earth in a meteorite shower, believe it. Annabelle Fairfield, Musicopolis, December 1973. The night before the arranged interview with Nyssa, I stayed at a hiker's hostel in a trail town in the Walnut Mountains. I lay on my back on a thin mattress among the residue of flattened mosquitoes and stared at the cedar ceiling of my room against which a mayfly bobbed and bumped its spindly body for hours before dawn. And then, suddenly, the sun was a glowing palm against the window. I rose and dressed, folded my few items back into my bag. Nyssa. I breathed her name, a warning whisper, a devotion. I blinked at myself in the cheap hostile mirror as I pulled my hair back from my face. I shared a friendly word by the outdoor coffee station with a backpacking couple. They asked where I was headed. Up the mountain, I said, near the bald. Devil's pate? Breathtaking up there, said the man. Hiking? I made a non-committal noise. Devil's pate was the closest landmark to Nissa's road. A treeless scrubland among the clouds from which, I read, you could see for miles in every direction. Storms gather there without warning. Every year or two, some hiker gets sizzled by lightning. Cosmic, the woman said. You really feel it. God's fingers stirring the air. Those vibrations. They didn't name the bald for God, though, did they? I said, forcing a joke. God or the devil? Guess it depends on your point of view, the man said. He spoke into his coffee cup, unsmiling and gulped the last of the muddy brew. The woman laughed, though, a sandpapery exhalation. I waved a vague farewell. A creek raced along the road, then dropped back as I nosed my car up, up, all around the dappled flash and shimmer of the day. At a juncture, a haphazard bouquet of signs announced a private campground, a freewill Baptist church, a farmer's stand. There was no evidence of any of those things. I passed a state park on my left, the metal gate across the entry cobwebbed with vines. Steering hard around a bend as the Yamaha whizzed past, the folder of Nissa research slid off the passenger seat. I hoisted it back into place, tucked a sheaf of papers inside again. The few relevant pages of a University of Tennessee doctoral dissertation in sociology, dating from 1987. Mountain High, From Folk Medicine to the Drug Economy in Southern Appalachia, 1945 to 1985. The manuscript clocked in at 370 pages, and I read every one of them. I found Nyssa on page 232 in a chapter on the region's first brush with the 60s counterculture. The student had interviewed a then 40-something male informant, Walter, 
who spoke of the Adcock girl, the only daughter of the county's esteemed doctor. The girl's mother was known far and wide as a folk healer. Walter nursed a crush on the girl in grade school, he admitted. A real firecracker, that one, he said. She'd sit there, tall and dark and mute, and then out of nowhere, she'd light up, wielding jokes in class that got her sent to the principal for a paddling. She was smart as hell, he said. She had no real friends among their school cohort that he could recall. Music people they were, her Adcock and Tolliver folks, both sides, Walter said. He claimed her to be a piano prodigy who also played the fiddle and the dulcimer at community suppers growing up. Then she almost got sent to jail the summer after senior year because of things she was growing and compounding, Walter said. I don't even know what it was. She didn't come off as any kind of hippie, but you saw her around from time to time toward the end of high school with long hairs from somewhere else. Nissa, her first name never appears in the dissertation pages, but it's her, all right, vanished not long after that. The rumors had it she was shipped off to a girls' college up north, or maybe it was California, or she simply ran away. Her family left the mountain shortly after Nissa's exit, so the news he gleaned was an echo of a hint of hearsay. He heard through the grapevine around the time his first child was born that the Adcock girl was some kind of musician up in New York City, or maybe just a groupie. She was the first we knew of around here to get in trouble with drugs in some way, he said, but she wasn't the last. This shadowy history accompanied me as I drove, pinching the scribbled directions to the steering wheel with my thumb. I fiddled with the radio and caught a swell of plaintive crooning, then static, then a patch of news. Storms on the way. There were houses here and there along the route, hugging the curve of road, some sturdy, some decaying. From one sinking stone facade, the grim flag of no known nation flew, flapping, violent, in a sudden gust of wind. Around another bend, the grounds of Green Hope Farm, the property of the guy who had arranged the visit with Nyssa, rolled up and away from the road, a carelessly tossed quilt. A goat stood by a fence working its jaw. A state sign for Devil's Pate hove into view by a crop of mossy boulders. Just after the turn, the asphalt became gravel, and the road inclined steeply to the right. The trees huddled thick and fell away and gathered again. I was close now. There was a mailbox of nailed-together scraps. No name. I inhaled a sharp prayer of courage and swung the car up and over a rocky berm onto a drive of sorts. What if there was no one waiting for me? I was never given a phone number. Either Nissa didn't want me calling or, as I was starting to suspect, she didn't have a phone. You could go crazy out here on your own, I thought with only your rattling brain and the trees and squirrels and deer to keep you company. The drive meandered around a stand of fat-trunked, towering trees, then hugged a ledge shaded by a tunnel almost tropical in the gloss of its teeming leaves. Bright open air glittered beyond. I bumped along the narrow shoulder of road and then, almost as if my body knew the way, veered without thinking back toward the slope and found myself in front of Nissa's place. The house was one story high, rangy, built of wood and quarried stone. 
It sat on a jutting ridge, its face toward the forest, shadowed by tall, bristling pines that creaked now in the breeze. The roof was gleaming tin, clean of debris. The facade, though, seemed a living thing, its stones uneven and mottled with moss. Paint peeled from the wooden front door, and the windows on either side showed no light within. I gathered my bag and my shaking hands, whacked the car door closed with my foot to inspire metal. I stepped up to the house and knocked. Nothing. I squelched the urge to turn around, get in the car, thump and rattle my way back over the drive and down the mountain. If I quit now, there'd be no cover story. But I could still pull together an ironic, speculative, postmodern kind of piece. Meditate on my ultimate defeat, pitched as a generational disjunction between me and Nissa Adcock. Anger forked through me. Who cared, anyway, about an interview with a country-bred art rock fossil? A person, a woman, no one had heard of, and whose sparse, dusty oeuvre in the glare of the zeitgeist was an acquired taste at best. Who cared about Mrs. Vindication, aside from me? I knocked once more. I felt it before seeing or hearing it the barest stirring of the hairs on my leg that might simply have been static, a shift in mountain air molecules. It was a cat. It trailed its rust and cream tail over my shins. It looked up, the black discs of its irises expanding and retreating. The cat leaped one-two onto the deep stone window ledge. It reared up, batting a paw against the clouded glass. That's when the front door shuddered open. This is Emily Alice Katz, and you're listening to Rock is Lit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stephanie Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. All right, lit listeners, you'll have to check out the new online issue of NCLR to read the rest of A Wayfarer at Devil's Elbow. There's a whole lot more to that story than what you've just heard. And I think anybody who loves Appalachian folklore and literature is going to be enthralled by the story. I mean, the title immediately evokes Appalachian lore, and then you have the descriptions of setting that are so vivid. They really bring that region to life on the page and amp up the tension as the narrator Violet is approaching Nissa's house. What's your history with this part of North Carolina? Well, sort of way back in my youth, so I grew up in Atlanta, like just in the Atlanta, Atlanta suburbs, uh, just a Jewish girl in the Atlanta suburbs <laughs> up in the like late 70s and 80s. But I went to my first ever sleepaway camp was outside Brevard, a camp called Gwynn Valley, which is still around, which was founded in the 30s as a kind of like, kind of a back to the land, like craft revival sort of in that moment and was very kind of rustic and craft oriented and, and still was when I was there in like the early eighties. Actually my kids went there too. And so things that you encounter at that kind of tender age, I was like maybe nine to eleven um, when I was there, those summers just feel so vivid and the landscape and the smells and kind of the folklore. Yeah. The camp really had its own folklore even. Oh, wow. It really imprinted itself on me, like the smell of rhododendron and, you know, kind of all that just is, is so deep in me from that time of my life. I've never forgotten it. And then the summer of 2021, kind of when we were all sort of creeping out of our, our holes <laughs> um, in the lockdown world, my family and I, when everyone else was like going crazy and like going on these far-flung adventures, we were like, let's spend a month in the mountains. So we went and spent a month in hot, in hot springs, um, North Carolina, which Ooh. is you know, close to the Tennessee yeah. border, yeah, beyond Asheville. And we just hunkered down and like went on all these hikes and just like hung out and absorbed everything. Mm-hmm. Just really like, it was our sort of last sheltering in place, but by choice. And so to really get to know that place and actually the drive that I describe here is a fictionalized version of that drive um, between Hot Springs and Max Patch, Okay, which we've since been to a number of times. And I had some really kind of distinctive 
kind of creepy, interesting experiences in that month that I was there. And mm-hmm. Max, Max Patch itself was just is such an incredibly uh, kind of mystical, amazing spot. So that's sort of what I had in mind when I was picturing where Violet launches off from, that, that sort of hostel that she takes off from, and then the drive up to Nissa's and Nissa's kind of land. That's sort of what I was picturing, a version of, of kind of that, that drive up to Max Patch is what I was picturing. You mentioned Walnut Mountains. Now, that's yeah. not far from where I am in Asheville. I think it's like 40-ish miles away. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned Devil's Pate in the story. Now, I've not heard of Devil's Pate. Is that a real place or not? That's made up. It's, it's my fictional version of Max Patch. Okay. So, yeah, the sort of Devil's Elbow, Devil's Pate, like this whole sort of this idea it is, again, a kind of riff on Max Patch, but I wanted to, like, I feel like there are a lot of places in North Carolina, it's like Devil's Campground and like, there is a Devil's Elbow that's, I guess, in the Panther Town Valley. So there are places around that are named to the devil. Yeah, there's Devil's Courthouse on the Blue Ridge Parkway. Definitely. So I just sort of went yes. with that vibe. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Later on in the story, there's a mention of, speaking of folklore, there's a mention of the moon-eyed people. Yeah. And I had never heard of the moon-eyed people. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Go to a spring and wash yourself. Since he was a moon doctor. I say it's awful hot and they want to borrow something. We had plenty of witches over in the mountain. And on its side was uh, the devil. Don't let them borrow nothing. So this goes back to this creepy experience that I mentioned when I was, um, and I didn't do like extensive research on this, but I had kind of a weird thing that happened to me one morning when I was out really early, kind of at dawn on uh, in Hot Springs, like on a kind of hike up to it what turned out to be there's sort of at the top of this twisty turny hill, there's a an old cemetery in Hot Springs, sort of the original cemetery. Mm-hmm. And I had kind of a weird, I guess, vision when I was up there. I thought I saw a woman. Whoa. I thought it was a deer, and then I thought I saw a woman. I, it was very strange. And then nobody was there. It was really weird. So <laughs> at the risk of sounding like completely out there, um, <laughs> it was interesting. And I was like, ah, you know, whatever it was, I don't know, either my imagination or whatever. And so I did a little bit of like just searching around initially just online, trying to find if there were if there was any folklore specific to like that spot, like hot springs and surroundings. And one thing that I dug up was this idea of the of the moon eyed people who sort of like, almost like deep, kind of way, way back, sort of almost a prehistoric it was my sense of um, what the lore was about them. It almost like what you read about like fairy folk, like in the British Isles, like that kind of a, that kind of an idea. 
sort of the wee folk or, you know, something like that. And so that's how I encountered the moon-eyed people. I haven't found much more beyond that, but that that's something that I, that sort of, I guess, is circulating in mountain lore in some capacity. But yeah, I hadn't heard about it till then. I hadn't run across that until then. So... <laughs> Who knows? That's fascinating. <laughs> yeah. They were before the Cherokees. I understand it. That's, and again, yeah. I had not heard of this until yeah. I started looking into it. Yeah. But yeah. They, they were before the Cherokee and the Cherokee supposedly expelled them. And okay. And that they were called moon eyed because they were nocturnal and could see clearly by moonlight. So now you've got me interested in, in this experience <laughs> that you had in the graveyard. <laughs> I know. It's, I don't know. I've told a lot of people about, I'm just sort of like, I'm just telling it like it is, like, about it and to, you know, take it for what it, what it's worth. But it was very inspiring creatively. So, you know, just. I would imagine so. Yeah. Just a sense of that place. Yeah. Just as a place where there's so much more than meets the eye. So that was the, that's sort of the feeling that I was going for anyway <laughs> in this story. In the passage that you read, you mentioned a 1987 doctoral dissertation entitled Mountain High from yes. Folk Medicine to the Drug Economy in Southern Appalachia, 1945 to 85. You probably made that up too. I did. But boy, could that be a real thing. It probably <laughs> is somewhere. Yeah. Like I'm trying to, you know, I went back through um, before talking to you, I was trying to reconstruct how I came up with the story and to the different stages of it, I sort of I looked at my notes and I can't remember what I looked at, if anything, when I was making up that dissertation. I mean, I spent a good chunk of my years in academia, so I can fake a, <laughs> I can fake a dissertation title, like one called upon. Oh, yes. Um, so, and I'm kind of back in, back in that world a little bit now. I don't totally remember where I poked around just to get a sense of what was already out there, but that was uh, a product of my own imagining so like the details and stuff sure <laughs> so yeah well it's interesting you know because the author of that fictional dissertation is talking about the region's brush with 1960s counterculture yeah it was there actually an emerging youth culture like flower power going on in the area at the time because you don't think about this area as being affected by the 60s. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, part of what I was wondering about there was like with through hikers, like how many people were already kind of coming through if they were sort of the dropout types who were out on the trail or, you know, doing their own thing, whether it's, you know, in Vermont or wherever. I feel like I know more about that kind of like in the New England and the Northeast than I do in the South. But wondering if there were some of these people, long hairs, as I call them in the story, and sort of in the voice of the dissertation and the informant. Mm -hmm. If there were any encounters that might have happened in that moment, where the two cultures are kind of brushing up against each other, because they're definitely, you know, sort of the Venn diagram in the 60s, of sort of, and 70s, as there are people who are kind of going back to the land, right? you know, kind of a wave of people going out to places like Asheville, or like the mountains in Vermont, or, you know, wherever, um, sort of how that encounter might have looked. And that's sort of kicking around in, in the back of this, too, that sort of, and I don't know, I don't know. I mean, I, ha I haven't delved into that in any actual historical, you know, sense. But it was something I, that sort of was fueling my imagination, I would say. Well, now that I think about it, going back to the 30s, there was Black Mountain College. Oh, sure. And yeah. That, yeah. That was certainly an, an avant-garde institution. So 
I spoke too soon about you don't think about kind of the counterculture being in this area, but certainly it was. It certainly was, at least in, in that little oasis. For sure. And sort of Black Mountain and yeah, tapping into like in the 40s and 50s, sort of, again, that earlier, like 1930s, you know, I don't know when Penland was founded, but sort of those, that very intentional craft, sort of revi- craft revival moment or you know just sort of the, the yeah. revivals the various stages of revivals of like um whether it's like bluegrass or whatever actually i recently learned that a forebear of mine who just died recently i'm distant on the family tree but was a bluegrass a musician his name is roger sprung who was part of this sort of 60s 70s revival who dug back in who you know went to the mountains and like dug back into to folks who you know hadn't looking at folks who hadn't been in the mainstream As a 60s Jewish New York, you know, if you think about that collision of those worlds, whether it's Moash and Folkways or, you know, that there were these, again, cultural kind of uh, fronts that were these, I'm thinking about like weather fronts that are sort of like, you know, kind of moving together uh, in a way. Nissa is such an enigmatic character and you do such a wonderful job of going into her shadowy history. You get the sense that she's almost a mythological creature. Did you have an actual female musician from the late 60s, early 70s in mind on whom you based her? Yeah, as I started digging into that part of the story early on, and it's like, who is Nissa trying to figure that out? And I think definitely like Patti Smith is uh, someone who I had in my mind's eye, just almost visually as well as, and like in terms of affect and stuff. Okay. Also like Joan Baez and Mimi Baez I was thinking about a little bit. And you mentioned Mimi Baez. Yes, I do. I do at one point. Yeah, yeah. So thinking about them, you know, those three uh, musicians as kind of iconic figures. I mean, at one point in this, (laughs) I guess it's the interview that Violet writes that's in the latter part of the story where she quotes a music critic who at one point called Nissa the hillbilly Yoko Ono. So there's there's also some Yoko Ono in there. (laughs) Like who, as an experimental musician, who was like so reviled by so many at the time, but like ruining the, you know, all this kind of crap. Yes. Definitely she was in the back of my mind. So yeah, those are a few people who I think upon further reflection, they were sort of always there kind of in the corners of my mind, helping to inform Nissa. I love that you said Patti Smith. When you have a female musician from that period who's sort of enigmatic and, well, Nissa calls herself, or she refers to herself as an old witch <laughs> now, most people are going to flash on Stevie Nicks. Oh, funny. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. But she did not <laughs> fit that role because Nissa, I, and I wrote in my notes, I'm not flashing on Stevie Nicks. I see Nissa as much grittier and earthy than Stevie Nicks. And so it's interesting you said Patty Smith. Yeah, like I just think of her as this, there's this kind of witchy, androgynous, um, mm-hmm. I am beyond playing games, Niss <laughs> to her. <laughs> that, you know, I, I see just, just not wanting to play anybody else's game. Yes. 
I'm interested in Nissa's name. The name Nissa has Hebrew and Greek origins. It means to test, goal, or ambition. It's just perfect for little girls with big dreams. Now, I know your academic background is in Jewish studies, so I gather it's no accident that this character's name has Jewish associations. How significant is Nissa's name to her character? That's funny. I hadn't even thought about really the derivation of the name. So this is, again, trying to backtrack how this all happened. Uh, Nissa, I ran across that name. Now I'm trying to remember. It was like a photo, a caption of a photograph, something I was reading. But the person's name was Nissa among it was sort of a group photograph of some sort. And I was like, oh my God, what a great name. And I was like, what would I pair that with? Like, well, and the name Virgil just like came to me. And I was like, well, who are these people? Who are Nissa and Virgil? And this is, you know, during COVID, sort of the height of COVID, I started keeping a dream journal, which I don't normally do, where I just have a, a journal next to my bed and just I write down dreams. Like I find that it helps me creatively just keep kind of that ferment more present kind of in my day-to-day life. So I actually that night set an intention. I was like, who, who are Nissa and Virgil? And I wrote it down in my dream journal and went to bed. And I had a dream that night that my husband, when we were in a record store, and he took out this record and showed it to me. And it was like this 70s, whatever, like experimental rock record I'd never heard of. And I was like, whatever, you know, nothing. That's all I remember from the dream. I, you know, I woke up that morning, that's, I, I wrote that down. I remembered it. And I was like, that's it. Nissa and Virgil were this experimental rock duo from the 70s. And all I have to do now is figure out what the story is, you know, but I knew, <laughs> I knew. Nissa later on refers to herself as an old witch, and folk healing is a part of her legacy. Yes. Her mom was a folk healer. Her dad was the county doctor. She seems to have this interesting relationship with magic. It's sort of ambivalent. Magic can be used to heal and do harm, and she doesn't seem to pass any judgment Mm -hmm. about which way it could go. I agree that she doesn't pass judgment. I think part of it for her is. It's something deeper. It's about pattern. It's not about necessarily settling scores, but about patterns, about sort of the deep structure of the universe, about her debts that paid or unpaid to the universe, you know, in a way that nature doesn't judge good or bad, like things just happen. Yes. I think that's what Nissa has aligned herself with. It's almost amoral, a kind of what, what is, is, and she's learned to harness some of this because that's her gift and her legacy, but she's not fetishizing this. It's just sort of what what is, and she's trying to be in tune with with that. I think that's my sense of her as a character. Well, let's talk about your music. In the intro, I mentioned some of your published stories. Tell me about your music. I know you're a member of Manifesto Klezmer. Yeah, Manifesto Klezmer Band. Yes.
I've been involved in a few kind of different things. I mean, I, I picked up guitar when I was in college and just taught myself to play just to, cause to write my own songs and did some of that, you know, in my early twenties. Um, but most, mostly since then, and including in that time, I've really worked collaboratively with others, which I, I love that about music. I mean, I, I love writing and I love the the solitude of writing, but I also really, really love what happens when you collaborate musically. I just think there is some kind of talk about magic. I mean, I do think there's something truly, truly magical about that. But yeah, this latest project, which was sort of on hiatus for a while because the the kind of the maestro, Phil Blank, who's a musician and writer, uh, artist, and he was here based in, in the Triangle for many years and we crossed paths and I was sort of drafted in to just really his project is this Klezmer band, which is a kind of blues influenced, kind of embracing improvisation and atonality and things that we don't normally associate with the way that Jewish music has been interpreted in the 20th and 21st centuries. It's more been like art music and, you know, kind of, or folksy sing-alongs or whatever. So he's really pushed up in a new direction. And I came on board with arrangements and sort of my vocals of Yiddish poetry. And happily, you know, it's been on hiatus for a few years. It looks like we're going to get started up again um, in the next couple of months. So oh, uh, yeah, I'm putting that sort of cap back on, which I, I really love. I mean, the funny thing about music for me is that I think it's always there. I love songwriting. I love writing lyrics. I love singing, you know, creating melody, all that kind of stuff really left my own devices. I, I, as you know, an adult, I've really been kind of writing uh, and not writing music, but writing you know, stories and, and that kind of thing. But as soon as someone's like, oh, Emily, like I have this thing, I have these tracks, will you listen to them? Or I have this thing I'm thinking about doing, like, do you think you could come on board? Oh my God, it's like a switch goes off. Like, I just love it so much. Again, that's the nature of collaboration. Like, I feel like I, you know, I'm not thinking about it, but the second someone's like, oh, hey, can you bounce some ideas off of this thing? Like I, I just jump right in and I, I'm so excited to kind of, kind of like turning a faucet back on and just really, really excited to, to get back into that, that space, that creative space. It just fuels me. Like, I just love it. Ich bin gewähnt am Mollingling Gehört in Portokosokraten Es hat mein Busen frei mein Liebling gehat dem schönsten Tors in Atten, gehat dem schönsten Tors in Atten. There are 10 songs on the one album that Virgil and Nissa made together. You include song titles in the story. So since you are a musician, did you actually have music and lyrics thrumming around in your head when you came up with those titles? I didn't. That was a part of the, the story where I just was like, okay, I'm just going, I'm just going to riff. I'm just going to whatever pops into my head. And I just went with it. Like I just, just whatever crazy stuff came into my, it was so much fun with the critical quotations that that was a little more painstaking. Like I really had to kind of, you know, come up with different voices and think about like sort of channel those dudes with the, <laughs> with the album. It just kind of poured out. <laughs> so I, I was just like, I don't know. I'm just going to riff on this and see what I come up with. It would be fun actually to make the album <laughs> now that it exists like on paper. Some of the authors I've had on the podcast, namely Peter McDade, have actually recorded soundtracks to their rock novels. So it just occurred to me that perhaps you've done something similar. Oh, so cool. 
<laughs> I would definitely need some collaborators to make that happen. Are you in? You want to be part? You want to be part of it? <laughs> oh hell yeah! I'll do. I'll shake a tambourine. Yeah, okay, I love it. <laughs> all right, all right. I love it. Oh my god, we have to do it now. So. I I'm game. <laughs> I'm there. So, <laughs> so I have one more music question. Who is Sadie American? Oh huh, yeah. So from my deep, deep and distant past. Um, so this was my project when I was in my twenties. You know, starting in college. Uh, it was it was me essentially, and then I had a couple of other um, musicians come on board for when I was recording and playing out a little bit. Um, but it was my songs. I played lead guitar and I did vocals, and called myself Sadie American, which is actually a figure from American Jewish history. She was like an organizer and kind of a woman activist, kind of in the Jewish world. And I just loved her name so much. I uh-huh. mean, Sadie American is just like the coolest. I just always thought it was the coolest name. So I didn't want to use my own name for this project. So I called it Sadie American and my fellow musicians, Justin Moyer and Raphael Cohen, who are still actually like amazing musicians who are, have their music out in the world. They were in on that with me in college and in my early twenties. And then Justin stayed on for a while longer. It was kind of like, I guess, bedroom pop was what it was called. I think back okay. in the day, just sort of like lo- lo-fi indie kind of yeah i would say like bedroom pop uh like a definite pop sensibility but kind of like a little rough around the edges by design i would say i'm glad i now know who sadie american is that's awesome (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) well emily thanks so much for joining me the story is a wayfarer at devil's elbow and you can read the whole thing in the new online issue of north carolina literary review out now You can find out more about Emily at her website, emilyalicecats.com. tuning in lit listeners if you enjoyed the show please subscribe and leave a rating and comment on good pods and apple podcast links in the show notes wyatt the rock is lit mascot and i really appreciate your support stay tuned for upcoming episodes of rock is lit to hear from more great rock novelists and special guests until next time keep rocking and reading and getting lit rock is lit It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.